cream cream. Stay with my friends. On yourself or? With it, yeah, on myself and my friends. Okay, is this a Halloween tradition here in Brooklyn? Yeah. Yes, definitely. But what about this woman with shaving cream on her car? They're having a good time. Could have been worse. Could have been eggs. Eggs? What are you going to do with eggs? They're going to throw them at people. We're going to cook them. I'm going to hit this kid over here. Yeah, we're going to hit this kid over here. See? They put the eggs away because look at this. Down the block, a constable on patrol in the mood to confiscate. Let me have it. Come on, please. Let me have it. Come on. He finally did hand it over. As for the rest, they wrapped up their Halloween on the run. New York police say they will be out in force to make sure no one violates the spirit of Halloween or the law. Will Spence, Channel 7, Eyewitness News. Look at that. It's like it's like a trip down memory lane where that's sort of how I remember my childhood. I think it's roughly the same era. And it's a, a, a sad reminder at the what I'm calling it the Wittgenstein's ladder that we have been climbing to an authoritarian totally tyrannical type of reality, an Orwellian reality to which we have climbed. You go by steps and you don't really appreciate it as each step goes by, like the learning process. And then you just look back 20, 30 years. When, 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 when police and community trusted one another, when people had a relationship with the police, when, you know, at least by the looks of this one nostalgic video, old people tolerated young people. There, there wasn't this existential fear uh, among citizens. There wasn't this unbridgeable political ideological divide among citizens. Uh, but I want to coin that concept, the, the, the Wittgensteinian ladder. It, it, it used to be referred to as the, you know, the steps of learning. You get to the next step, you kick away the ladder, you're on the next step. We have been going down a Wittgensteinian leveling up to absolute loss of freedom to the point where we don't even understand what freedom was that we have sacrificed in the name of security and security that is actually um, arguably not even there. So I, I, I don't like hierarchizing uh, interviews because each interview is special, unique uh, in its own right. I have been looking forward to this since I first started listening to Dr. Malone. And admittedly, like I'm in the hide, I'm in the Wittgensteinian leveling up, not lawyering up, leveling up of, of, of knowledge, of information. I remember Dr. Malone saying things that I heard two years ago and simply not understanding what he was saying and not understanding the, the importance and the um, importance, for lack of a better word, of what he was saying. I, I'm sort of, I've leveled up now. And I understand now looking back, and I've got more questions. I, we're going to get into the discussion, and I hope I'm going to ask the questions that many of you out there have. We have a, uh, a live chat running on Locals. Get your questions in there. Get your questions on the post. And we're going exclusive to Locals, I'd say, in about 12 minutes. After We're going to do a bit of an intro. I'm not going to delve deep into the childhood of Dr. Malone, but I want to know who he is, where he's from, how he got to be where he is, and then we're going to get into... The meat of it. Dr. Malone, get ready. Incoming in three, two, one. Sir, how do you prefer like this 
I think this might be better. We get to see your diploma this way. <laughs> I, I, I have a diploma, but I got my dogs up in the back. That was a courtesy of a, of a sub. This, this was uh, at, at Peter McCullough's strong advice that I was really doing myself a disservice by not having the papers in the back. So uh, we'll see how important that is. Well, I, I now know because I saw more of the backdrop than you're showing now. There's <laughs> six diplomas back there, correct? <laughs> Yeah, and, and we still have to hang the patents, but that's... <laughs> uh, we're going to get into all of that. I don't want to get into the credentials yet. Uh, everybody knows who you are, 30,000-foot overview, so I'm going to skip that for the time being. Uh, the, the most... I, I need to know, where are you from? W what did your parents do? What was life like growing up? Just so I can understand how you got to be where you are now, and then after we get that intro out, I'm going to wind this up on YouTube, and we're going to have the discussion on Rumble. So I was born in Palo Alto at the old Stanford Hospital um, in uh, 1959. I just turned 63. And uh, my dad was still an uh, electrical engineer student, I believe, at the time. Uh, he had uh, been in naval intelligence uh, stationed in Japan and came back and met my mother, who was from Eastern Oregon, uh, from a, a farming family that had a large sheep ranch, sheep and wheat. Uh, and she was going to Mills uh, Teachers College. So they met in the Bay Area. Dad was from uh, Pensacola. And uh, so this is uh, the Deep South. And he came from a family that uh, was long in banking and traces his roots back to early days in the United States through uh, a notable great great that uh, was a captain in the um, CSA uh, serving under Stonewall Jackson and Lee who got shot up in the Battle of Richmond which isn't too far from here where, we, where the farm is. So deep southern roots on that side and then on mom's side farming that traced back to uh, England um, uh, in eastern Oregon which is also kind of a conservative area and uh, as I said, they met in the Bay Area. I was born in uh, Palo Alto. And uh, dad went to work in uh, the defense industry in along California. California at the time in the 60s and 70s was really a, a major hub for all defense, particularly engineering. So he first went to work for Hiller Aircraft uh, that was involved in um, project to prove a new technology in Southeast Asia that we call the helicopter and helicopter gunship warfare now. So that was kind of how he started. And he spent his entire career moving up and down the West Coast. We lived, we moved every two to three years, lived in Seattle. Uh, he did instrumentation for the 747 when it was being designed uh, and um, ended his career working in what's called a high energy systems uh, involving the technologies uh, of um, electromagnetic surge protection, uh, low inductance capacitors. Uh, so this is rapid discharge, uh, high energy capacitors, and technology called exploding bridge wire and exploding foil, which is what they use for the very precise detonation of thermonuclear bombs. Uh, and the other major influence in my young life was my father-in-law, who uh, was head of uh, special projects division at Raytheon, who had uh, spent time during World War II in India 
in really was involved in the birth of radar and uh, then came back after the war um, and uh, left the UK, migrated to Montreal and then to the Los Angeles area where he got involved with Stoddard Aircraft, did some of the early avionics for the SR-71 and then ended up in Goleta, as did my dad, where I spent the rest of my young life. Uh, Goleta is is a kind of a middle-class suburb just north of Santa Barbara along the coast. So I grew up uh, pedaling my bike across one-on-one to uh, um, Pascal's Beach, uh, uh, the Pacific. Um, that is now uh, a huge resort called the Bacara, but back then it was... Uh, oil land and uh, tar on the sand and and dead seals and uh, just hanging out and um, and then I I spent uh, a lot of those teen years uh, as a horse enthusiast, which is how I met my wife. Um, she was fifteen; I was just barely turned sixteen, and we used to go riding all over the hills uh, along the cow paths and stuff. You can't do that anymore either. And the oil company folks would let us ride along the cliffs and beaches uh, along the coast because uh, we weren't hippies by definition because we were riding horses. Uh, so that was that was kind of um, a little slice of paradise. It just doesn't exist anymore. The house uh, where I grew up in Goleta was about four miles as the crow flies from Ronald Reagan's ranch, just to give some context. Okay, that's, that's fantastic. I mean, it's fascinating and probably not the only slice of paradise that is no longer left. Um, all right. I, I, I'm going to end it now so that we won't have to get uh, complicated in a second. Everyone head over to Rumble, which is where the conversation is going to be. I'm going to end it on YouTube and leave it up here just so people can migrate over so we can actually have free and meaningful discourse. So ending on YouTube, going to Rumble now. Uh, okay. Amazing. And I won't, I won't belabor that anymore. One question, moving around every two to three years, what does that do to a child in terms of um, making friends? What type of childhood does it have? Are you, are, do you end up being something of a loner, taking pleasure in books, or you made friends wherever you went? Uh, books was it. That books was my refuge. And I, as a, a very young person uh, in uh, Stanford, Palo Alto, for some reason, uh, you know, and, or uh, overachieving engineer and a teacher decided that I should get an IQ test and I kind of pegged the needle. And, um, so then that, that triggered a whole set of things. And I was, I was tracked back in California, back in the day, they had, um, uh, special programs for gifted and talented. All that's gone away now. Uh, that's, I don't know. Um, I don't know what it is, uh, racist or something. Um, uh, but it shouldn't be done. Uh, and, um, so, so I kind of grew up tracked, um, to intellectual life and, um, I had a younger brother, have a younger brother, uh, um, and, and, uh, I guess I'm, I've always been someone who likes small groups, uh, small groups of people, close friends, um, people that, uh, I can, I can trust and feel comfortable with, and people that like to talk and think about things. I've never been a athletic uh, type person, except for uh, I decided to uh, become, I, I really love the outdoors. And uh, so for instance, when I was 15, 
I did the Muir Trail um, from Whitney to Yosemite, so that's backwards. That was, uh, let's see, 1976, so it was the anniversary year. Um, and uh, so I loved backpacking, hiking, and rock climbing. I was an avid rock climber, so that was my, that plus uh, equitation, um, kind of just casual Western riding was the stuff that I did for um, exercise. And then I, uh, I started working when I was 12 or 13, I think it was 10 cents an hour, um, doing landscaping and, you know, mowing the lawn and stuff like that for the neighbors. So I've always, uh, worked with my hands and that was kind of an intentional thing to, I didn't want to just be a geeky, uh, book guy. Um, I wanted to be able to work with wood and with my hands and, and with tools and, uh, machinery. And that led to, um, my spending a number of years, uh, in orchard work. Um, I planted, I don't know how many avocados and I can, I can set up your avocados with drip systems and all that good stuff. Um, and harvesting avocados and spraying weeds and fertilizing and, and then was a carpenter for a few years, uh, before I decided to go back to school. So I've kind of been a, a weird mix, uh, um, of, uh, laptop class tracked and, uh, um, you know, real world, uh, tracked. I'm, I'm one of those weird crossovers. Very cool. My, my wife and I are, we're, we're growing an avocado seed and it, it just split in half and the little thing is coming out of the middle of it, but it, it will die like all of, that's not going to work because you have to, you have to graft. Um, so that's, that's avocado okay. businesses Forget and it's it. all, and as I understand it, it's now all in control of cabals. It's, it's quite twisted. Well, we're, was, we're, we're going to get there, but, and also, you know, in respect of if you had not trust issues, but if you, if you only trusted small groups of people before, I imagine that's only been exacerbated in the last two years. Um, let, let's get into credentials. You, you get into university. What do you study? How do you get to, um, how do you get to where so, you are? So the path was, uh, I had, when I originally went to UC Davis in 78, I guess it was, I graduated in 77. Um, I, uh, um, I didn't do well. I was, I was smart enough that I never had had to study before in high school and I got good grades. And then I hit UC Davis and got tracked for a uh, heavy duty sciences and I just blew it. Um, and basically I dropped out before they kicked me out and, uh, went and lived up in the Hills, uh, just on the, um, California side of Lake Tahoe up in the Sierras, uh, along highway 50 on the American river. And, uh, where I was joined by Jill, who's, uh, now my wife, we got married about a year later. And, um, uh, then, uh, did this, uh, worked in carpentry for a while and decided that I just didn't want to spend the rest of my life, um, doing that. And I wanted to make more of myself. It was kind of a, um, in, uh, let's not go into the details, but I, I had an epiphany on New Year's Day, 1980, and decided I just wanted to turn my life around, that I didn't like who I was. And so I enrolled in community college. And uh, my parents had, had told me that I had destroyed my brain at that point um, because of uh, my youthful indiscretions in the seventies along coastal California. We'll leave that alone. Um, and, uh, 
So I was really uh, not very confident about how I'd do. Uh, but I, um, I applied myself and I got straight A's, much to my great surprise. So I spent the next two years just busting my can at Santa Barbara City College and uh, graduated uh, you know, with straight A's, top of the class, uh, student body president, had been student body vice president, uh, got awards for top computer science student. I was a computer science major and top student at graduation and blah, blah, blah. And um, took calculus at UC San Diego so I could get back into UC Davis. And then they readmitted me. And I, my mother had, you know, it's one of these things you want to please your parents at some point. And, and um, I'd come to that point. My mother was deathly afraid of breast cancer and had really wanted me to become an MD, which in the, at that point in the seventies and early eighties was just a um, absurd fantasy, especially for, they call them bent arrows, people like me. And, uh, and it was just wicked hard to get in. So I kind of figured I'd temper my bets and I decided to get a degree focused on this new technology that really sounded interesting molecular biology. And uh, they didn't have a molecular biology program there. So I, I graduated in biochemistry, uh, but took all of the microbiology and molecular biology coursework I could get. I probably should, I made a, I made probably a bad decision there. There's been a number of them. For instance, not carrying forward with computer science in uh, 1982. That was not financial, financially rewarding. Um, and, uh, but I didn't want to spend the rest of my life in a basement staring at a computer screen. And so now I do that, but I make far less money. Um, and, uh, so, uh, you know, I, I, I decided to prep myself and I thought, well, if I couldn't make it into med school, then at least I could get a decent job in this new technology space. And, um, and I, while I was doing so, I wanted to do an internship in the laboratory. And so uh, starting in 1983, I managed to convince a MD PhD pathologist to take me in. And uh, I'll just turn on the mic here because we're getting some airplane noise. I think it's on my side. Yeah, um, I, I, it sounded good on my end. Okay, so uh, so um, so this uh, Dr. Robert Cardiff, uh, who is working on mouse memory tumor virus breast cancer, which is caused by a retrovirus, took me in and basically gave me free run of the place. But he was a rather harsh taskmaster. And so every week, it, you know, I had to present in the lab meeting and it was what are the positive controls, what are the negative controls, what's your interpretation, what's your hypothesis, blah, 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 just bang, 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 bang. Um, and uh, after two years of that, I became pretty good at, as a scientist. I probably learned more uh, of my scientific training from him in my last two years of undergraduate than I did since. Uh, and while I was there, uh, the... Uh, professor who was in charge of the department, the department chair, a guy named Murray Gardner, who was quite a character and uh, uh, had come to UC Davis from uh, having set up the cancer center at USC uh, because his wife wanted to have a red barn and a pond. 
And so to recruit him, they found a, a farm with a red barn and a pond. And that was that. And Murray uh, was extremely well connected in the virology community. Um, one of the pioneers, his father had been a, a big shot at Berkeley. Uh, and and uh, so he'd, he'd really been fast-tracked. And um, uh, Murray and Preston Marks, uh, in 1983, as uh, there was this uh, immunodeficiency syndrome brewing in the Bay Area in San Francisco, just down the road from UC Davis, noticed that the non-human primates at the Primate Center also had an immunodeficiency issue. And uh, they worked on that and identified and isolated a virus that was a retrovirus. And so that was the first real clear indication of a retroviral um, component in, in uh, a primate model um, relating to the AIDS. And at the time, uh, that was a very controversial position. But I was there, you know, participating in the lab, um, uh, right at the forefront of that and all of the cascaded things that happened, the heavy-duty politics. Uh, Murray uh, flew out to the uh, Pasteur Institute and met with Francois Barre and, and Luc Montagnier and brought back the virus that caused AIDS in his pocket. I remember, I'll never forget him, almost, you know, this man in his late 50s, gray hair, uh, almost dancing down the hall when he came back from Paris with this thing in an Eppendorf tube in his pocket. And uh, so I got to see a lot of stuff, um, you know, on the front row seat uh, at a time when a lot of things kind of came together. Uh, um, Bob Gallo, uh, Tony Fauci, uh, the origins of the virus, uh, really the origins of that whole juggernaut of money that flowed in to immunology and virology and molecular biology. And um, because of that, I got an MD PhD scholarship. So I way overshot the mark of what I thought I could get. Um, and I went to Northwestern uh, because I should have, I should have said yes to USC, but they were just holding on so long. And, and I, I just, uh, um, I went to Chicago and there was a break in the weather in February for my interview. And I thought, it's not going to be so bad coming from Santa Barbara. Um, and my wife will never forgive me. Uh, and I'm not allowed to make any relocation decisions anymore. Uh, so uh, that's kind of what got that kicked off. And uh, because of my work with the retroviruses and isolating DNA and RNA, I had developed a fascination with RNA uh, and RNA viruses also. So when I was at Northwestern, I did rotations in uh, RNA binding proteins and influenza. And then I decided to leave Northwestern, uh, took some exams for my PhD part. And uh, to my surprise, I, I had wanted to do gene therapy, which was all about retroviruses at the time. And I got it accepted into UC San Diego, who had the they had the top two gene therapy researchers in the world. And so that's, that's what brought me to that part of that story. Okay. That's fascinating actually. And now for anybody who's read or listened to the real Anthony Fauci to, to contextualize your life experience, I mean, you, you sort of lived through that twice. Now, I guess you knew Anthony Fauci before anybody in modern times even knew what his name was. 
Um, okay, so I guess now we're in we're in the thick of it because people on Rumble that get into the mRNA stuff. First things first, can you explain the difference between DNA and RNA for the for the lay person boob out there like myself? Okay, so we're going to go high level. Yeah. Um, uh, I like to use the metaphor of pearls on a string. So that's a good metaphor for a polymer. Um, and if you imagine the pearls have four different colors. Um, so that's that those four different colors, how they're arranged in that string of pearls can convey information. Does that make sense? Just like your computer has a two, has two base system, zero and one, right? Yeah. So with DNA and RNA, it's a four base system. Uh, and those four bases with DNA are four different chemicals that are hung off the side of a, of a polymer. Um, and those four different chem in a very structured, regular way. And those four different chemicals are abbreviated A, T, G, and C. And uh, with DNA, um, one strand wraps around another strand to form the famous helix that Watson and Crick got a Nobel Prize for discovering um, based on interpretation of other people's data. Uh, so um, DNA is two uh, spirals that wrap around each other and um, do so in a very structured way by base pairing between these colored, the, the chemicals that represent those colored pearls. And uh, that makes it so that when you want to replicate DNA, you can um, run the little replication machinery up one strand and it can check against the other strand. So it's really accurate. That's a good thing for DNA, for humans and, and animals and stuff like that, plants. Um, RNA is almost the same, except instead of ATGC, it's AUGC. And it's a single strand, but that's kind of a misrepresentation because RNA, instead of binding to a, a opposite strand like DNA does to form a helix, RNA binds to itself. So it forms really complex three-dimensional structures that are so complicated that you can't really predict them with a computer, uh, even with the most high-powered um, whiz-bang stuff. Uh, so uh, RNA is another polymer with four components for bases, they're AUGC, and it is generally used for a number of things in biology. It can be used to serve as a structural scaffold for proteins. Uh, that's ribosomal RNA. Um, proteins are assembled around an RNA core to form the little robots that produce proteins. It can be used to transfer amino acids. So amino acids are the <clears throat> subunits of proteins. Um, and so that's transfer RNA or tRNA. Ribosomal RNA is rRNA. Transfer RNA is tRNA. And it can be used as a message, like a ticker tape that comes from the DNA, um, goes out into the cytoplasm where those little machines are that, that produce the proteins, and it gets read like a ticker tape. It fed through those little machines, um, base by base, uh, and um, codes the sequence for the proteins that it wants to make, that your body wants to make. And so 
That is a that ticker tape that comes as a single-stranded molecule from the nucleus DNA out into the cytoplasm is called messenger RNA. There we go. Uh, so hence mRNA. Okay, and so the interplay between mRNA and DNA. Uh, what is the interplay? Explain the interplay because mRNA will affect DNA. Okay, <clears throat> yeah, so there's that whole thing. What you're referring to is the uh, um, laboratory work that shows that um, RNA, it's, it's well known. So there's, there's a particular virus that is able to take RNA and make it back into DNA. Um, and uh, that sounds very retro, doesn't it? Um, it's a retrovirus. It goes backwards, okay? Um, and so in the presence of that protein, RNA can be made into DNA. And then once in DNA, it can do things. And RNA can also bind to DNA or interact directly with DNA. Um, so if you want to, if you, let's say in the hypothetical, somebody wants to make a drug out of RNA and put it into your cells and uh, that, and then you, then a concern might be raised that that RNA can somehow affect the genome of the person receiving it. Generally speaking, that RNA would need to be turned into DNA, which means that viral protein would have to exist because this is not something that normally happens. Uh, um, the Nobel Prize was given for discovering that uh, protein that does that. Um, and... Uh, um, actually, my mentor at the Salk was the one that characterized that protein uh, when he was working for a guy named David Baltimore that got the Nobel. So it's a rare protein. It's mostly associated just with viruses. And the truth is that we have some old antique retrovirus DNA in our genome. And under some conditions, you can have reverse transcriptase turned on. And under those conditions, you can take the RNA and make it DNA and then in rare instances, that DNA can stick itself into the genome. But there's other ways that RNA can interact with DNA, like I said, through base pairing. And so it's not just that, but that's probably what you're referring to. Um, and that's the uh, work that uh, has been shown to occur rarely in, um, particularly in liver transformed, so cancer liver cell lines in cell culture but I'm not aware of anyone having shown uh, integration uh, of or modification of the genome of a patient or, or a large mammal um, from an RNA administration. They have shown that with DNA injections used for DNA vaccines. It occurs very rarely, but it can occur. I hope I've answered your question. That's well, it's good. I mean, it's good enough. I'm going to have to process this afterwards, but just so we can contextualize the technology that we're talking about now with mRNA vaccine technology, people will take issue with the term vaccine, but yes, I do too. Well, and if we go back now, because we're going to get to the, to your patent on the, you know, the, the, the plural there's, there's patents, nine, nine. The, the, on, on the version 1.0 of mRNA technology. And it has since evolved. Uh, if you can do it in a way that I'm going to understand what, what is the, the you're, you're credited until your Wikipedia page was edited of having been the founder. 
uh, or at least the co-creator, co-discoverer, however you call it, of mRNA technology. I, I wrote the patent disclosures. I wrote the original patent disclosure for mRNA as a drug. I came up with the original idea. Patent authorship is a complicated thing. Anybody that contributes anything intellectually that goes into the patent is listed as a co-inventor. It doesn't matter if they came, they came up with the main idea or they came up with add-ons. Um, and by patent law, there's no distinction between who is first or last in authorship. It's all irrelevant. It's not like academia. Um, so that's, that's just want to kind of put a stake in the sand, but, but I, you know, I've, there's a documentary that's going to be coming out, I think in February, it's in late stage production right now. Um, uh, I think it's called something like, uh, mRNA success has many fathers or something of that. Uh, it's in the IMDAB listing um, for me, and you can find it there. So, so I, you know, I have all the documents, uh, the signed invention disclosures, et cetera. So, you know, put a stake in that. Um, uh, that's, that's how that went. I came up with the ideas. I had the insights of, of how to apply it. And we could go down that rabbit hole of, of how I came to that. Um, I've done other podcasts on that one. Um, well, that's the thing. We're, we're t time limited. And also, um, I might be limited in terms of the ability of, of, of even asking a meaningful question. I mean, if you could oversimplify how mRNA technology, what they're calling the mRNA technology in the vaccine, even works, compared to uh, distinguishing it from okay, the... So really simple, um, high level, uh, the core idea is literally to use gene therapy technology to cause your body, the cells in your body, to be the manufacturing facilities for the protein, which normally your body's cells would make if it was infected by a virus. So what happens, for instance, with a coronavirus or an influenza virus is RNA is delivered to your cells using viral proteins evolved in an evolved viral delivery system. That's what it is. Okay. That's what, um, that's what infection is. That's what infection is. Okay. And so the idea here is um, once I had inadvertently, you know, through a series of things discovered how to make large quantities of RNA and uh, engineer it so I could detect whether or not it made a protein in cells very sensitively, uh, and uh, had a delivery system that worked not very well, but way better than anything before, um, that then it was just a small intellectual step to say, hey, we could take uh, this RNA, this technology, and uh, deliver a, a subunit of the viral genome, rather than the whole virus, into people's cells, just as if they were infected by the virus, but they would never make another virus. They would make some of the proteins of the virus. Okay, simple enough. Yeah. Um, and uh, they would mount an immune response as if they were infected by the virus, but there's no virus. Uh, so that was the concept in a nutshell, is uh, do what viruses have learned to do through a millennial uh, evolution uh, in a very inefficient way, uh, without having them replicate, uh, of course, that assumes that the protein being made is not pathogenic, that the protein made is not causing a disease. The and protein, of course, the, the protein being made 
as your body's response being triggered by this? No, the protein made by your body. Okay. The protein encoded by the RNA. So the thesis, I never envisioned somebody being so, uh, uh, how do I say gently, um, irresponsible uh, to uh, use this system to express a protein that is a toxin. Um, at levels that it would cause significant human toxicity, when in fact that's exactly what they did um, in the case of the spike protein. Okay, that's the part you're going to have to flesh up. But if we can back it up and just make sure I sort of understand, and it might require a comparison to traditional vaccines. We understood traditional vaccines would be made from an inert or... Okay, that's a gross oversimplification. Okay, so what, what a traditional vaccine stimulates something of an immunological response, but not enough for infection, but enough to create a defense. I'd still say that, so that's not right. Okay, um, go, please. So uh, a, a traditionally a vaccine is a material that you administer, typically a biologic material that you administer to a patient to elicit an adaptive immune response that will provide some degree of protection against a pathogen. Okay, so there's a whole bunch of different ways to do it. You can make a weakened virus. That's what the live attenuated polio vaccine is in the sugar cubes. Remember the sugar cubes? No, I, or that might be before my time. <laughs> do, you, do you? Well, then it's also before your time. Uh, the vaccination for smallpox. The vaccination yep. for smallpox used a uh, a very closely related virus uh, that would elicit a protective immune response against smallpox. But it would give you a little bit of disease. Uh, it was actually a replication-competent virus. And those that were immunocompromised could actually get significant disease from that. Uh, so that's another kind. Another kind is um, uh, bacteria. Um, uh, for instance, there is a live attenuated tuberculosis bacteria called BCG or Bacillus calibet-gerain. Uh, that um, is closely related to tuberculosis that's used all over the world as a vaccine. So there's a case of a to people um, that gives them a little bit of disease, uh, but uh, we can argue about whether or not it provides any protection against, uh, against tuberculosis. But a lot of people believe that that's the case uh, throughout the world. So, so there's a whole bunch of different ways that you can cause somebody to receive a, uh, you know, you can do it orally. You can uh, smell it. You, that's the uh, flu mist product um, for influenza vaccine. You can sniff it. That's a live attenuated cold adapted influenza virus. It's actually a live influenza virus that you sniff. Um, there's a lot of different ways that you can get biologic material into somebody's body to cause them to make an immune response. Okay. Um, but none of those uh, really involve making a synthetic polynucleotide in a test tube, manufacturing it, um, mixing it with other chemicals in a way that causes it to slip into your cells and enable your cells to start making a protein. It's, it's a kissing cousin to live attenuated uh, vaccines. Uh, and it's also a kissing cousin to uh, recombinant, for instance, adenovirus vector technology. That's the J&J &J product, 
which has also pioneered that technology in the same lab where I developed the RNA tech. And um, uh, that's, that's an example where you take one virus, a cold virus, and you engineer it so that it doesn't produce disease and it's weakened. And then you put in a snip of gene, once again, in this case, uh, encoding uh, the spike protein, and uh, then manufacture lots of that recombinant virus and give it to people uh, through injection in this case, or you could uh, in some cases sniff it. And uh, then it replicates in your cells and causes your cells to make the spike protein. Same basic idea. Does that make sense? It, it makes sense. I guess where I'm getting a little confused internally is in this particular case, the mRNA, is it injecting a spike protein or tricking your body into generating a response? No, it's no trick. No, no, no. It is putting, so remember I used to talk about the ticker tape. Yep. The ticker tape is the information that causes the little protein manufacturing uh, uh, robots in your cells to make proteins, including the spike protein. If that, that, those little robots are agnostic, they will make anything depending on whatever the ticker tape says. And so if you feed them a ticker tape that says make spike, they will make spike. Okay, so where are they going to get that ticker tape that says make spike when there's no virus around? Oh, well, you can slip that into the cell artificially, having made it in the test tube as an mRNA product and purified it. And you can slip that into the cells and it will go and find those little bio robots, those ribosomes, and those ribosomes will make spike protein. So it's your body still making it. Uh, and the mRNA is just the ticker tape. It's the information to tell those little bio robots to make spike protein. Did, that, did I get through I, that time? I, I, I think so for me, and I hope for the crowd as well who might, be, who might have had the same question. Another question, are there various types of spike protein or is spike protein something very specific and unique? Almost all viruses, I think pretty much all viruses have a surface glycoprotein. That's a fancy word that means it has sugars attached to it and it's on the outside of the virus that is used to uh, bind to cells and cause the virus to be taken up by those cells and release the RNA or DNA genome that the virus uses to transmit its genetic information. So a spike is an example of an envelope glycoprotein. Another one is the hemagglutinin protein of influenza. Um, so there's all, virtually all viruses have something like that. Even bacterial viruses have little things that stick out that grab onto cells. Um, the spike is, is a slang, really, that's typically used with coronaviruses, but it represents a class of protein that's on virtually all viruses. Um, and it is a protein in the case of spike that has, uh, for coronavirus spike, has particular structure. It's made of three, it's actually three proteins that come together. And I like to use the metaphor, if, you, if you've ever gone fishing for bass, you might have used a treble hook. Um, so uh, if, you, if you understand those that go fishing, a treble hook, a treble hook has got the little part down at the bottom that you tie the string to, and it's got the three barbs that stick out. Spike is kind of like that, um, and uh, each one of those is a monomer, single spike protein. 
comes together to form a trimer. And the part that you tie the fishing line to is the part that sticks into the cell and attaches it. And the part that sticks out that's got the barbs is the receptor binding domains in this metaphor. It's not a perfect metaphor, but it kind of gives you the, the idea. Um, so, uh, and it undergoes a change in structure when it binds to its target. And uh, that would be the ACE2 receptor among others. And uh, so when it binds to ACE2, it undergoes a conformational change. And this causes the uh, RNA to be taken up into the cell. It kind of grabs onto the cell and then ratchets down the virus onto the cell surface. It's really amazing. Uh, evolution is an amazing thing. Uh, so, so spike is an example of a uh, envelope glycoprotein of a virus that is used to bind and attach the virus to a cell and to inject its uh, genetic information into that cell. And uh, um, it, it has these unique characteristics. And in, in there, are there different spikes? Of course, spike is mutating all the time uh, because these uh, envelope glycoproteins, and this is why they put sugars all over them. They decorate the pro the pro virus causes the protein to be decorated with sugars, much like you would decorate a Christmas tree. And, uh, but in very specific places, uh, and it does this to avoid uh, both antibodies and cellular immune response, but particularly antibodies. So sugars get all kinds of water all around them and it makes them more like a gel. Uh, you know, um, I'm sure you're familiar with uh, uh, the gels that are, if you have a child uh, and, and you had to change the diapers, uh, that inside those paper diapers is a gel product. Um, so there's an example of a gel. And gels are, are easily formed with sugars uh, that kind of coat the surface of the spike protein with structured water that makes it really hard for antibodies to attack it. And so um, uh, spike is an example of these glycoproteins that have sugars. And those sugars are modified where they are and how they're structured in order to make it easier for uh, spike protein to avoid uh, antibody pressure and neutralization of the virus to keep the virus from replicating. So it, it acquires other mutations as it's doing this along the uh, protein backbone, the amino acid parts that the sugars hang off of. So I hope that's, that's a a quick zoom. <laughs> it's complicated. I mean, it leads into the next question. I'm sure my, my wife is a, is a neuroscientist who's going to probably understand this at the next level. But so that th this is the question then. Uh, the difference between the spike protein generated from the jab versus the spike protein generated from natural infection. Uh, so uh, this is something that the fact checkers hit me with uh, really early. And by the way, they were abundantly wrong. But, you know, if you get somebody that doesn't have a, even an undergraduate degree in biology um, that f isn't even a journalist, um, fact checking uh, a seasoned uh, virologist and immunologist, uh, you know, that's, that's some things get lost in translation. So the spike, spike is a toxin. We knew that at the outset, there was a paper from the Salk Institute that wasn't yet published, but they had posted the data that showed that spike protein could cause um, cells normal connectivity to loosen up. And that really matters in your brain, your blood brain barrier. 
and was and there was other papers coming out that showed other types of toxicity associated with spike. And so famously on the Brett Weinstein podcast, I said spike is a toxin and it was like uh, the orcs were released uh, from Mordor. Um, and uh, um, and they all said, no, 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 this is not true. Uh, they engineered the spike protein to not be toxic. That was a bald faced lie. Uh, there are two point mutations. That means single amino acids that are changed. Remember the fishing hook? Yeah. Okay. In the part of the fishing hook that attaches to the cell, that's like where you tie the string. There are two single amino acid mutations that are put in spike that were discovered years ago with SARS-1. So this is not new, cool stuff that somebody figured out in three days before they started engineering the virus you know, that whole timeline, um, but rather years before with SARS-1 and MERS, uh, other coronaviruses, people had shown that if you change these two single protein subunits, these two amino acids, it could make spike become a better immunogen. You would get a better immune response. And it had to do with locking the spike protein. Remember I said that it can, it changes shape when it binds and attaches to cells, it makes it so it can't do that, okay? Um, and so uh, those two-point mutations can make spike uh, elicit a more effective antibody response, but it has absolutely nothing to do with the toxicity, which is largely associated with the receptor binding domains and the parts that are out, you know, in the treble hook metaphor, they're out there where the barbs are. And so... Uh, um, that whole storyline that was promoted, uh, obviously, as propaganda through these fact checker organizations and through the press was a lie, um, has no scientific basis. The protein produced by the vaccines all have these two point mutations, which make spikes slightly more immunogenic, but they get left when spike gets cleaved off of the surface of cells, which it does when it's released. Um, and circulates in your blood, um, the two point mutations stay with the part that stays attached to the cell that manufactured it. And uh, the rest is let free and it does its damage to the heart and blood clotting in your brain and everything else. So that's, that's, you know, that part is identical, whether it's from the vaccine or from the virus. Now, the big difference, um, you haven't asked the question yet, that people often ask, well, how come then you get you seem to have these toxicities and these problems with the vaccine that you don't get with the natural infection. That's a complicated question too. That, that one, um, see, I, I think I asked that in some form or another to Dr. Francis Christian, and I think I understood the answer, but now I, there's a lot, it seems it's more complicated than I might've oversimplified it to myself <laughs> because uh, uh, Dr. Mullen, it's not wrong to say that uh, people do have reactions similar to the bad, the adverse reactions from the vaccine from infection itself. The question is severity and the question is frequency. Just so. And there are other, so there's an overlap and the uh, long COVID or the post-vaccination syndrome, there's a great paper out from months ago that showed that you cannot distinguish between the symptoms of long COVID and the systems of symptoms of post-vaccination syndrome. They are virtually identical. The difference is the severity and frequency with some exceptions. And 
So the thing is that it turns out, and we could go down that rabbit hole, um, the stuff that's used to slip the RNA into your cells also has its own toxicity. So that's different from spike toxicity. And then in addition, the RNA itself is not natural RNA. What's being used these days is not the it's not RNA like your body makes. It's a synthetic product. Remember I said A-U-G-C. Yeah. The U is actually modified. It's pseudouridine. And uh, that pseudouridine placed at high concentration in RNA is still not really understood. Another thing that the FDA didn't do their job on. Um, but it can cause immunosuppression and it can cause the RNA to last for a really, really long, long time, like 60 days or more. Um, and so um, you have effects from the spike. You have effects from the delivery system, the cationic, this is that people talk about the nanoparticles, positively charged fats. Um, you have effects from the polyethylene glycol that's made to keep the nanoparticles from sticking to each other. Some people have hypersensitivity to PEG, and that's the uh, short-term hypersensitivity that people get. And then there is the effects of the RNA. So when we talk about these toxicities, there's overlap. But um, there's also additional things with the mRNA products that aren't with the uh, virus. And frankly, a lot of those problems are the reason why I stepped away and my laboratory stepped away from continuing to pursue the tech and working on other things and other approaches. So that's, we can, that's a whole other thing. Um, but we always had that problem with the inflammatory response. Now, in terms of... of there is a key in terms of why the difference. Um, this is another one where the FDA didn't do its job or better to say they didn't force pharma to do it because the rule in pharma is you don't ever do anything unless the FDA forces you to uh, because you might get an answer that you don't like. And so that's just the way things are in that big, bad world of pharma. It's not about doing the right thing. It's about doing the profitable thing. And so if FDA doesn't do its job, pharma won't do their job. And that is absolutely the core story here. Um, and so uh, they didn't check for these toxicities and they didn't check for where these things go, how much protein is made, how long it lasts, where, where is it distributed, all the core things that you do. You know, anybody that has taken first year pharmacology knows you have to do this. And so this paper came out in Cell from a very large group in Stanford that was one of the first to talk about immune imprinting, which is a whole nother thing that we could talk about. Um, the reason why you really don't want to take the boosters, um, um, you know, in addition to the toxicity, but this uh, group from Stanford, instead of relying on cell culture or mice or monkeys or something, they actually stuck needles into the lymph nodes of people's armpits or axilla on the same side where they took the jab in their deltoid muscle. And uh, they pulled out cells from those lymph nodes, which get quite swollen um, and uh, can give false positive readings on breast cancer screening. And they pulled those cells out and they looked to see, uh, did they still have RNA there? And then they also uh, did blood draws and they looked to see, is there any spike protein there and how much and for how long? And what they found was the RNA sticks around for detectable at at least 60 days. They didn't test beyond that. 
Um, so this whole storyline that the RNA only lasts for a few hours or maybe a day or two that was promoted by pharma was another lie. Uh, and um, so that means that the adverse events that uh, we need to monitor to see if it's vaccine related really need to have a window of up to two months, not two weeks, um, to calculate those adverse events and things like VAERS. Um, and it showed, the study showed that the levels of spike protein that were being produced um, rise very rapidly, which is very different from a natural virus infection. And they rise to levels that's considerably higher than you observe after natural infection. So you get a lot more protein, spike protein, a lot faster, and then it persists for at least 60 days. So you've got more for longer all over your body. Um, of this toxic material uh, with the jab, and it comes at you fast and hard uh, and then tapers off, whereas with the virus, it slowly climbs as the virus replicates in your cells. Did that make sense? That makes sense, actually. And now I, it, it allows me to ask the question. I, we understand the term toxicity at large, but fr from the physiological perspective here, what when we say it's toxic and causes cancer, heart attacks. What is going on in terms of the actual toxicity as relates to the various adverse effects that the toxicity can, can trigger or generate? So let's start off with um, oh, making sure that we define our language because our opponents like to pervert our language all the time so that we don't know what we're talking about, right? Um, what is an anti-vaxxer? It's somebody who believes in the rights to inform consent now. That's an anti-vaxxer. Um, just to, to put a stake in that. And that, that is actually correct. Even if you oppose legislation that makes vaccination compulsory, you're an anti-vaxxer. Just so. Um, so uh, yeah, there's a lot of this kind of Orwellian uh, word um, redefining and twisting uh, going on over the last two plus years. So a toxin is something that causes toxicity. What is toxicity? Toxicity is pretty much anything that causes uh, damage, particularly clinical damage. It could be that it causes uh, something causes cancer. It could be something that causes you pain. Uh, it could be something that causes redness. Uh, these are all examples of toxicity. It could be something that uh, will kill you um, indirectly by causing some effect that will have a, you know, 10 year lifetime to eventually uh, get you. Uh, it can be almost anything uh, that produces an adverse event in an animal or a patient. So a toxin. Toxin typically is something that would damage a cell. Uh, so then the question is, what is the toxicity associated? Let's just compartmentalize to spike. Yeah. Okay. Spike does a bunch of things that those treble hooks that sit out there um, bind this receptor ACE2. ACE2 controls a whole lot of things like blood pressure, um, your salt balance in your body, how your kidneys function. Um, it controls uh, how cells attach to each other and whether they open or they they open those attachments. There's a lot of complex biology. And ACE2 is right in the center of a bunch of key pathways. So this thing, if it is biologically active, which it is, um, uh, binds to ACE2. And by the way, um, because of their modifications of the furin cleavage site, paradoxically, I'm sure this was not intentional, uh, it has a predilection for binding and causing problems 
uh, with non-Asian populations. Uh, so just park that um, and chew on it. Uh, and uh, so it can bind to ACE2 and cause damage by a variety of pathways that way. Okay, park that. It is really a sticky protein. Um, it, it just is, it binds to all kinds of stuff non-specifically. And when things bind non foreign proteins bind non-specifically to your natural proteins, your immune system can get confused and they, it can think, oh, this is a new protein. It's got this new thing hanging off of it. In addition to the old thing that I have learned over time since the, my, my, you know, my host was born, uh, and their thymus matured. Uh, I have learned what the normal things are in your body. And uh, when I see something sticking onto one of your proteins, it looks like a non-normal protein and I should attack it. So it, it, that generates the autoimmune phenomena. Um, there seems to be a direct cytotoxicity on heart. In a, and then there's these various indirect things. I think a lot of the brain toxicity um, has to do with the tight junctions being open. And then this other core problem. If I may ask just one more, cytotoxicity versus toxicity? Uh, cellular, to so it, okay. it kills cells. Okay. Um, sorry, uh, uh, this is immunobabble I'm talking, <laughs> forgive just, me. Don't uh, worry about you it. know, if you put immuno in front of any other word, then it becomes a special word, right? Um, and, and then you can publish a paper. Uh, so uh, in any case, spike, because for whatever reason, it has a tendency to bind to uh, platelets and cause those platelets. Platelets are the things that cause your blood to clot mm -hmm. or help facilitate blood clotting. Um, and it seems now somebody's bothering me and I need to. Um, don't don't just worry. Sick. Hey, Jill, what's up? Hey, when you go to dinner? Um, <laughs> it's four now. Uh, how about 430? Sounds perfect. Okay. okay bye. Uh, I get dinner, um, in half an hour. Uh, so isn't it magic? Uh, that's the lovely thing about having a 40 plus year marriage, um, and a trusted partner. Um, so, uh, in any case, spike binds, uh, platelets, um, it, that then you get something called thrombocytopenia. That's a fancy word for not enough platelets. Because uh, they're getting cleared by your spleen and other things because they've got this foreign protein sticking on them. Uh, and then there is also an immune thrombocytopenia. Um, this is an autoimmune process, just like you have the Guillain-Barre uh, disease uh, that's an autoimmune attack of uh, your peripheral nerve cells, etc. Um, and uh, so there is a direct uh, platelet interaction that can lead to both the direct thrombocytopenia and an autoimmune thrombocytopenia. Um, and then, uh, so that's a, that's a problem with not clotting properly. And then spike also appears to interact with the fibrin um, cascade, which is what causes blood clots to form. And it does so in a way that causes those blood clots to get cross-linked in an in a improper way which makes it so that they produce these really thick stringy clots that your body's normal processes for clearing blood clots can't clear. And then it also causes uh, what, here's another fancy word, microcoagulopathy. So it can cause little teeny tiny blood clots, 
that block up your capillaries. Capillaries are the little teeny tiny tubes between your um, arteries and your veins. So it goes through kind of as it moves in, it kind of arborizes like a tree root um, at your capillary base and they get really small. And if you get little tiny uh, clots in there, it'll block those. That's probably has to do with the brain fog. Um, and it may well have to do with a lot of the cardiotoxicity. It may be this kind of microclotting problem um, in addition to potentially an autoimmune problem uh, because that autoimmune um, uh, cardiomyopathy has been a problem, uh, for instance, with uh, the smallpox vaccine. And it seems very similar. There, there's a quick uh, overview of uh, bad stuff that happens with spike well, at, at the at the lowest level. Let me ask you this now. I mean, it, it makes it makes the jab sound really wonderful. What does the jab <laughs> actually do to actually achieve the 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 stated objective of preventing infection? Um, so it makes this spike protein, and your body makes an immune response against that spike protein. Unfortunately, the jab. Uh, is using an RNA sequence that is outdated. Because it's, of the evolution of, of the, the coronavirus. In, in particular, in response to universal jab policy. And this is something that I've spoken out to for a very long time now. And of course, Gert von Embasha has also, uh, just to give credit. And that is that when, if you deploy into the face, into the, into the teeth of a pandemic when there's already a lot of viral pressure, you deploy, deploy, widely deploy a vaccine indiscriminately, what you will do, particularly a vaccine that only expresses one of the proteins from the virus, you will cause the virus to evolve to escape the vaccine. Ta-da! Um, and the reason why, among other reasons, natural infection produces a better, longer-lasting immunity is because you mount an immune response against all of the proteins in the virus, not just the spike protein. And so it's really hard for a virus to evolve against, uh, to escape pressure against 10 different things. It's a really fairly easy for it to escape pressure against one thing because um, otherwise it has to mutate all those other things all at the same time. And it basically, if it tries to do that, it loses its ability to be viable as a virus. Um, that I'm oversimplifying, but that's, well, that's, that's, that's basically what's happened is that by deploying a universal vaccination strategy, um, it was known from the outset that it was highly likely that that would drive the development of escape mutants, just as we have seen escape mutants. Um, uh, and, uh, and so uh, the worst thing that could be done is to keep jabbing with the old virus sequence, which is what they've done. Uh, and then the other problem is, and I mentioned it earlier, uh, immune imprinting. And that's also used the term to express that is kind of easier to remember and kind of sexy. It's called original antigenic sin. Um, and what this means is that it's the reason, by the way, when you get repeatedly jabbed for influenza over the years, um, the effectiveness of the vaccine goes down, 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 down. Right now, it's well below 20% for most people. Um, and what happens is that your body learns from the first jab, 
from its first exposure to that protein. And it develops a memory. And just like when you develop a memory of uh, stubbing your toe or breaking your leg or whatever um, as a child, forevermore, you will probably avoid the conditions that caused you to have that event happen. Um, you'll become gun shy for, uh, you know, whatever it is that caused you to break the leg is an example. And your immune system kind of reacts to the thing that it knows uh, from the original event. And it is it, it creates a bias. Another metaphor I've used is uh, the French in World War II in the Maginot Line. Um, they thought that they could put up these uh, defenses against the German Blitzkrieg. Uh, and the Germans just basically better produced better technology and blew right past it. Um, but the French had invested all their time in building uh, defenses for the last war. And that's kind of how your immune system works. Uh, and so when you repeatedly jab like this with the old sequence um, from one protein, what it does is it forces your immune system to become more and more and more focused on World War I tanks. Uh, and then when the panzers come through, uh, they just mow you right over. Um, I hope that metaphor works, but that's uh, that's the simplest I can make uh, immune imprinting. Uh, okay, well, if someone had asked the question, I, I want to get to when Fauci decided that natural immunity was no longer the best response. But I, I mean, we'll get we'll get to the absolute corruption of of the medical practice in a second. But when they were saying mix and match jabs, if, if the if the jabs trigger different responses between <clears> them. How on earth could the concept ever have worked that you can mix and match willy-nilly just as long as you took two? Uh, that was uh, a, you know, basically um, hand-waving for convenience. Um, uh, all through this, there's been a lot of stuff that have been said by, you got to remember, epidemiologists, MPH people, they're not, you know, some of them are physicians, not all of them. Uh, they're not trained in virology and immunology, really. Uh, and they say a lot of stuff. They're, the MPHs are trained around the logic of utilitarianism, the greatest good for the greatest number. And that's kind of, and then there's a whole lot of teaching about how to do statistics and biostatistics and monitoring and surveillance and blah, blah, blah. But they're not really hardcore scientists. Uh, and we've had a whole lot of um, uh, horse pucky. Uh, thrown at us over time here that just isn't scientifically based. So what they did with the mix and match was they, this is another case where they, there was a breach of their rules. Normally uh, by protocol, you would have to do a rigorous clinical study to evaluate whether mixing uh, was better, worse, or the same as uh, using the product repeatedly, um, uh, the same product. And they just blew that off. Uh, I don't know why they did it. it. Well, I'm sure I infer, I speculate. They did it out of a sense of necessity. A whole lot of, I mean, when you listen to Deborah Burks and, and Rochelle Walensky um, again and again and again, and, and the woman, I can't even remember her name from World Health Organization that's been spouting so much stuff. What you hear from them is the word, well, we just hoped it would work. 
Uh, traditionally, that's not good enough, especially if you're mandating a medical product that's unlicensed. <laughs> but that's kind of what they did is they substituted hope for science. Um, and uh, then we get to the the booster or what the va- the White House, the FDA calls it a booster. Up- updated vaccine. Yeah, updated. They, yeah. Updated, whatever you want to call it. And the White House says, no, it's a new vaccine. Um, so apples, you know, tomato, tomato. Uh, it is what it is. What they did was they took the spike sequence from Wuhan 1 and mixed it also with spike encoding RNA from uh, the latest Omicron version. I think it was BA4. Uh, it's actually 3-4 um, uh, because the changes between 3 and 4 weren't in the spike protein. Um, and they gave that to everybody at a time when the virus was already evolving to the new variant. Um, and so what they did with that is they further reinforced all of the memory cells that had been generated at, off of Wuhan 1, and they further reinforced those. And then to some extent, they provided some Omicron a boosting, uh, which had already been shown if you did that, you would actually suppress the immune response uh, to Omicron compared to if you didn't do it. So what they did there was they just completely ignored the data that we're already in that had been published by major labs in peer-reviewed papers in places like Cell and Science. Um, so it was just, they, they're getting increasingly desperate or uh, egregiously um, uh, uh, profit-driven, I don't know. Um, but, but it made no sense at all from a scientific standpoint. Uh, now, I'm, I'm going to ask you this. I, I, I was watching, I don't know which podcast, and I don't want to get into the population control hypothesis, uh, but I do <laughs> want to know. <laughs> when, <laughs> at, at, well, let me ask you, because I, I know that you're vaccinated as well. You, you talked about it. I don't know if you're boosted, and I would never ask. No, no boost. Uh, and you're not, well, I, I jab Jab 2 gave me such toxicity, and it was one. it was from one of the known bad batches, that I'm lucky to be here. Uh, you know, uh, hypertension, systolic hypertension to 230 is life-threatening. I've got to ask you this because I, I hear the rumorings, but then you never know what's rumorings and what's not. I've heard about bad batches and they made jokes when certain high-profile celebrities experienced random events and they say it must have got a bad batch. What, what does that mean, uh, Dr. Malone? What was the bad batch? What made it a known bad so, batch? So um, normally... And we can't go on too much more because I have to go get my dinner. But um, uh, normally there is very rigorous quality control over the vaccine, over any medical product manufacturing, whether it's drug, vaccine, or a device. And uh, testing processes that ensure that everything that goes out the door is the same as the thing that was uh, originally licensed. And uh, Pfizer and Moderna managed to negotiate contracts uh, that, as, as governments all over the world were quite desperate, they got terms and conditions that essentially said, uh, no, Mr. Government, you cannot test our product for lot consistency, purity, potency, et cetera. And, uh, and then we ramped this up from a experimental technology that had hardly ever been used before into billions of doses. And uh, uh, you cannot do that um, without having things go wrong from time to time. Uh, And you're bringing new manufacturing facilities online and they're learning, et cetera. So 
normally this would be tested before it ever got released to the population, but basically they just put it all out and jabbed everybody. And uh, a group uh, that you can find how bad is my batch, if you Google that or use, please don't use Google anymore. Um, uh, but how bad is my batch? And you can go in within the States and dial in. Remember when you got your little vaccine card? Uh, I know you got jabbed. I got jabbed. When you got your vaccine card, they put in a little reference number. That was the lot number. And you can dial in that lot number. Take that card if you still have it. I do with my passport because I've had to travel. And uh, dial that in. And you can see because people have cross-referenced the VAERS data the vaccine adverse event related system data to the batch numbers. And they have shown that certain batch numbers have many, many more deaths and adverse events than others. It's not randomly distributed. And so you can go in and see retrospectively, oh, I took a bad one or I took a good one um, because the quality control is uh, Shiza. Um, uh, and that's, that's what's going on is another case of the FDA failing to do its job. Let me ask you this, if we have a few more minutes, um, what was your black pill moment in all of this? Hmm. Uh, that's a, that's a kind of a, I've kind of been black pilled my whole life, uh, one way or another, you know, starting with my nervous breakdown at the Salk Institute over, uh, the politics that I encountered when I made these first inventions. Um, I, uh, the, the, if, there's a number of them. Uh, our book uh, that Jill produced in a month by working her can off um, and published in the first week in February on uh, preparing and protecting yourself from the novel coronavirus. Remember, we got this call from the CIA officer on January 4th alerting me. And we got busy and she, I helped her, but she wrote the book, um, you know, well over a hundred pages of highly referenced stuff written for average folks. And uh, it was published on Amazon self-publishing and uh, lasted there until March when they deleted it um, for a reason that we had never heard before, violating community standards. Um, now, of course, we all know that term. Uh, and in retrospect, I don't think there's anything in that book that was at all controversial, uh, but... Um, that was a moment uh, that certainly upset Jill quite a bit after all the effort she put in. Um, there was an event that the kind of growing realization that the ethics of what was being done were just absolutely wrong um, had to do with a physician that has um, almost lost his ability to practice medicine in Canada uh, for mentioning these things. I mean, he doesn't want his name mentioned, but I had a long phone call with him about what he was seeing in Canada and the use of things like ice cream to intense, entice children and uh, the Canadian government um, not taking any of his uh, vaccine adverse event reports seriously from his patients and dismissing them all. And then there was the Byron Bridal uh, um, uh, from Canada, this uh, vaccinologist academic from Canada that grabbed the uh, preclinical package uh, from a, a Japanese a regulatory agency server from Pfizer that uh, was sent to me to can basically independently review what he had said and observed. And I confirmed that. And, and that 
wrote a I wrote a paper for Trial Site News on that 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 documented the failings of the of the toxicology testing and the preclinical testing that had been done. Um, and then there was being lied to by Peter Marks at the FDA, um, reassuring me that everything was going to go okay before I took the jab. Um, uh, and it just kind of went on and on and on. And, and sir, um, the propaganda that was transparent to me and, uh, and the, uh, just vile, uh, attacks by the fact checkers and the, and the corporate media, um, was also, uh, uh, a huge reveal. So I'd say it's been more of a kind of a gradual ramping up than any one discrete thing. Well, and what do you make of the most recent CDC voting unanimously to add the jab? So I I said to Bannon the other day, we were talking about this and some other things. And I said, you know, it's just gotten to the point where corruption in the government is boring. Um, I want to move on. (laughs) I'd rather focus on the the activities at the World Economic Forum and and how this is all being manipulated, the puppet masters up above, because um, this kind of retail corruption that has um, really destroyed the reputation of what was once the world's premier um, uh, pharmaceutical regulatory body is uh, and and one of the premier uh, epidemiology uh, public health surveillance systems is just it's so pervasive that it it's no longer no longer intellectually interesting it's just yeah, you know <laughs> absolutely agree and, and people are asking also there, there was something about the graphene nanoparticles but i'm not even sure i'm able to answer ask the question yeah so the graphene um and i got a i'm kind of at the end but yeah absolutely um, so there absolutely are crystals that form and this is complex because these particles have not been well studied and there's complexity about the effects of temperature and what happens when you open the vials. There's a lot of graphene oxide contamination in the environment and we have to acknowledge that. Uh, And when we see these planar crystals, they aren't necessarily graphene oxide until they're proven to be graphene oxide. Um, And so there's something going on uh, with crystallization. I don't doubt that anymore. Is it graphene oxide? I don't know. Is it some uh, contaminant or intentional uh, addition? You know, this was early on. People talked about there's razor blades in here. Well, that's kind of a, uh, let's take that as a metaphor. I'm sure they didn't go and buy razor blades uh, from Schick and break them up and put them in the vials. There absolutely are glass fragments in some vials. This is a known problem with fill and finish processes. There appear to be metal shavings. That's not too surprising if you're running um, these high-pressure pumps at uh, full speed 24-7 to pump out billions of jabs, they wear. And so it's no surprise to me that you get some uh, stainless steel uh, shaving contaminants in there. And that's another thing that should have been picked up by uh, the lot release stuff. Graphene oxide, I haven't seen that proven to an adequate level And one of the problems is the pharmaceutical companies have negotiated this agreement, like I said, where nobody is allowed to do the testing. Um, And that's just absurd uh, and shouldn't have ever been allowed. Uh, But as a consequence, you're actually legally forbidden if you're a physician, if you receive one of these vials, from transferring it to somebody and doing testing. So all this stuff has to be surreptitious. 
it's done through uh, expired vials or things that were left on the bench or, and, and that's just, you can't do science that way. The custody chain is just shot. Um, so you can't really track that things were handled properly. And so you can't get to the bottom of this because once again, the FDA didn't do its job. And this will be the last question. And then we'll say, we'll, we'll end and we'll say our proper goodbyes for people out there who are wondering how long the risk lasts for, I presume it's something like, you know, uh, a, a steep uh, sloping curve. Like if you've, uh, if you've had no. a shot a year and a half ago. That's the problem is uh, um, unknown. That's the honest answer, unknown. Uh, and and I think we have to try to be rigorous about that and not speculate. You know, there's people that came out and said, oh, you know, three quarters of the people are going to die. You're all going to die. Um, that's not probably well, we're, true. we're all going to die. So it's a question of well, when and why. <laughs> as, as, as Zero Hedge likes to say in a long enough timeline. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, so are we all going to die from the jab? Uh, I, I don't think so. Uh, the data aren't looking like that. Um, but for instance, myocarditis uh, mortality is not trivial. And it continues to climb over seven years, at least. Um, the we don't know about the we don't know enough about what's happening with the cancers, um, and that can also be indolent. In other words, long, you know, progressing over a long period of time. Um, autoimmune disease often um, manifests years later and and can take a long time to really get you. So uh, these rare uh, diseases and adverse events that may occur at the rate of one in a thousand to one in 10,000. But if you're the ones that show the short straw, it doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, those can, those can get you and they can get you over a long time span. So we're, I don't think that, um, any of us are going to be in the clear for probably at least in a decade. Uh, in terms of being able to be totally um, relaxed about this. But also on the other side, I want to say our opponents love fear porn. They love to frighten us. They love to use fear to control us and to control our behavior. And there's a whole lot of things in the world to be frightened of if you feel that way. I mean, when I go for a walk in the back here on the farm, I could get bitten by a copperhead. Uh, it happened to my dog uh, um, last year. So, uh, or I could fall off the cliff or, you know, it's just a million things. I could, the airplane could drop out of the sky. Um, risk is relative. Uh, and, um, but, but the myocarditis risk looks like it's higher than the risk of dying in an automobile accident. Mm -hmm. um, so I think it's, it's important to balance risk. And I've heard of, I've heard of people, there's somebody that we know from our horse business that is so deathly afraid of getting infected by this coronavirus that when the feed company comes by to deliver sacks of grain, she comes out in a full Tyvek suit. Um, and she's she's been known to go hide in the forest because she's so scared of visitors that might infect her. So, you know, fear can become irrational. It can rule your life. And uh, don't don't go there, um, you know, uh, and, and don't don't let the fear mongers don't let CNN and their fear porn control your life. 
Uh, and also, I think on our side, we have to be careful. Um, there are there are podcasters, and I could name names, that just love to promote fear. Fear is a great way. Fear and outrage are a great way to get clicks and views and followers. And you can build all kinds of stories, et cetera. But it's really no different from CNN um, you know, selling vaccine fear uh, to get sponsorship from Pfizer, uh, you know, to, to sell uh, coronavirus fear, as they have done, right? Uh, even down to the level of our children with Big Bird. So Absolutely. just don't, don't buy into it. Dr. Malone, I'm gonna, we're going to end it now so we can go and say our proper goodbyes. Thank you immensely. Anytime there's anything more to talk about, if you want to grace us again, I would love it. We would love it. Um, where can people find you? Sorry, where can people find you? And, and, and what do you... Yeah. So the, the, um, let me put the book plug, the obligatory book plug in, forgive me. Um, but if I don't, uh, Tony Lyons will be aggravated. So uh, we have finished the editing of... Uh, the lies my government told me and the better times ahead. And uh, it, it is coming out under the Children's Health Defense label published by Skyhorse. Uh, so that's the same pathway as Bobby Kennedy's uh, um, Anthony Fauci book. Yeah. Uh, and um, I am assured that it will absolutely be delivered before Christmas. Um, you know, and, and don't shoot me, please. I'm, it's out of my control now. Uh, uh, if you order it and it's available for pre-order and we tried to make it available before the election uh, as an ebook, but I'm afraid we missed that timeline uh, since that, you know, we, what we can both agree to is get out and vote. Right. Um, uh, so uh, the ebook will come out first and then the uh, proper printed version should be available for Christmas gifts. If you want to, uh, to do that. And it goes way deeper into um, these stories of life on the farm and, and how things transformed for us. And then it's got a bunch of stories from frontline physicians like Pierre Corey about what they've experienced. And then a whole deep dive into uh, um, the WEF and the economics and, and the science and the propaganda and all that good stuff. So you can find the book on Amazon. You can, uh, Follow our Substack, please. It's free. Um, you can subscribe and it will come to your inbox in your email on a daily basis unless you use Microsoft products and then it will go into your spam box. <laughs> um, uh, so that's rwmalonemd.substack.com. And if you wish to subscribe, uh, you don't have to. Uh, but if you do, then you can participate in the chat for each of the topics which uh, does a great way. It's great for keeping the trolls uh, out of the dialogue because they don't want to spend five bucks a month. Um, so there's that. And then Gab Getter and True Social at RW Malone MD. And uh, maybe, uh, who knows, the physicians in the health freedom movement might eventually be allowed back on Twitter, but I'm not holding my breath. And I really find Twitter to be just a tiny notch above telegraph in terms of wallowing in the sewer. Uh, Dr. Mullen, send me all those links and I'll put them in the pinned comment on both Rumble and YouTube. But I think most people agree with you. Twitter is, a, it is the cesspool, but you know, it, it's a, it, entertainment and you get to know what your enemy, your ideological adversary is thinking. 
Dr. Malone, thank you immensely. I'm going to end this on Rumble. You and I will just say proper goodbyes, but thank you. Flip me all those links and I'll put them in the pinned comment and blast them around our locals community. Thank you very much. My pleasure. Thanks.